me invite you to go to Matthew chapter 20 this evening, please. Matthew chapter 20. We continue our series, Benchmarks of Discipleship, as an effort to, to help us think about what uh, progress in the Christian life is and, and progress uh, of the body in helping cultivate that. And uh, we're coming down the down the back stretch, right? We've looked at trusting, which is uh, confessing Christ as Lord and uh, following him in believer's baptism because you have a new life and a new love. You have a new Lord, new life, and new love. And then belonging to the assembly is identifying with Christ through baptism, with his people through membership, and with his mission through uh, participating in the spread of the gospel and then growing, uh, that we have responsibility to grow up into Christ. And we've been given the resources that we need for that in the word and in the work of the spirit and prayer and the gifts that are given to the body, which leads us then to talk about serving. Because the love of Christ has transformed us, we're to love one another as Christ loved us. And so we move toward people to minister to them as an expression of the love of Christ. It is uh, like his love that we move in that way. And the substance of that is using the gifts that he's given to us because he has supplied for the body what the body needs and each joint is to function properly. But to do so, we all must also must do that in the strength that God supplies. It's a spiritual kind of service that we need. And we would begin sharing what God's given to us through generosity and hospitality and testimonies. So that's the, those are all the ones we've covered. Now we've moved to multiplying. And last week we talked about multiplying disciples. That is, if, if we are growing in Christ, there will actually be fruit bearing that happens through our lives, that we will be involved in the spread of the gospel and that God's plan for all believers is to go and bear fruit that remains. And, and so it ought to be the ambition and commitment of every follower of Christ that we have not only received the gospel, but we are accepting responsibility for the spread of the gospel. Right? We're not just a, we're not, uh, we're not uh, really a, a cistern or a holding pen for the gospel. We're actually a conduit through which the gospel is to flow. God saved us so that we would proclaim his excellencies, 1 Peter chapter 2 says. And so we, we actually are entrusted with the gospel so that we can advance the gospel and proclaim the gospel. And it ought to be our desire to see people come to Christ through our testimony and pray toward that end. And, and witness toward that end. Uh, tonight, I'd like to look at a second element of multiplying that focuses on service or servants. I'd like to read Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at a, actually uh, look at a few different passages this evening to help fill out this concept, but I think this is a great place for us to start. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, 
Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to actually sort of summarize the first part, which is really a contrast with the life of service that Paul, uh, that Jesus wants disciples to, to live. Uh, it, it, it's a, uh, it's really sort of a, you know, a, a shocking, amusing kind of scenario, right? If you if you follow the thread of it, it, it seems to be clear that James and John put their mother up to asking this question because, you know, she comes and asks the question and he looks at them and says, what, what is it that you want, right? Or, or are you ready to get what you're asking for? And the other gospels make it a little more clear that that they were sort of, behind the, the, the question. And, and one of the reasons possibly for that is that this actually may have been his aunt. Uh, and there was some, some pushing on that. But they're clearly uh, wanting to have position and authority. And Jesus challenges them about that. And, and he's going to teach them something. But lest we think just bad, just bad of James and John, Right, it's, and this is the one that probably seems a little out of keeping. And this is John, the you know the beloved disciple, the one we tend to associate almost always with good things. Right, it's Peter that's the brash one. But remember, these are the sons of thunder. They wanted to call down lightning or fire to kill people too. Right, so John wasn't a wimp. And in this particular case, his ambition got ahead of the equation apparently, and they're asking for power as that being the thing. But what happens with the other 10? I mean, they're indignant. I don't think it's that they're offended about them asking for this because who would ask for that? I think it was like, why are you trying to get to the head of the line? Right? Because we know from the rest of the gospel accounts that the, the 12 were having this argument all the way up to the Last Supper. I mean, they, they really didn't quite get the lesson that Jesus teaches them because they're always looking for a position 
and, and a place of authority in the kingdom. And Jesus is trying to communicate to them that it's not supposed to be that way with his followers. You notice that language when he, he says about verse 26, it is not this way among you. That is the way the world works, right? The world judges the significance of a person by how many people they are over. Jesus says, it's not supposed to be that way with you. Rather than how many people you're over, it actually is how many people you're under. The one who would be the greatest, he says, is actually the one who serves the most. He, he completely flips the idea of the organizational chart, right? Our concept of being important is you have more boxes on the organizational chart below you. And Jesus comes along and says, no, the person who's greatest is the person who's serving the most people, right? That is actually investing him or herself in service. And that establishes the priority of service among the disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's, I just, I don't want you to miss uh, the point I'm trying to make here when he says in verse 26, it is not this way among you. So Jesus isn't. I believe, just talking to the 12. He's actually teaching something about the way his disciples should live. The life of following Christ is a life that is focused on service and giving most, uh, most honor to service. That that's the thing that is important because of the pattern that he set. Look at verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he anchors what he's teaching in the way in which he has lived. He came to be a servant. We know that we'll look in a moment at Philippians 2, but, but that's the pattern in Philippians 2 that Jesus consistently set for them and calls us to adopt as well, right? That, that our heart and mindset should be among the followers of Jesus Christ, the thing that is most important and in fact most honorable is service. And that the, the, the followers of Christ, which clearly this was pre-church, but by the time you come into Acts 2 and following the establishment of the church, the thing that should be most important in the church is the multiplication of servants, right? That, that it's actually the, the, the building and raising up of servants that is important because we're following the pattern of Jesus Christ. And he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, I read all the way through the end of the chapter, even though it's technically a separate section, I, I think it serves well as an illustration of Jesus's point, right? They're leaving Jericho where he's been teaching them this, and these two blind men are there, and they're crying out to, to Jesus to help them. And look at the reaction in verse 31. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. 
right? They're basically like, you know, cut it out, go away. They, they were not concerned about two needy people. They wanted something for themselves. They wanted to be able to give attention to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to be in that. And, and, and what does Jesus do? He stops and he goes over to these two, what were rapidly becoming cast-offs and says, what do you want me to do for you? Right? He actually embodies the very thing he just taught them. Right? Greatness is demonstrated through service. And, and Jesus goes, what do you need me to do? He moves over to serve them. He, he goes over to, to uh, touch and heal them in that way. And so I think it becomes a great overarching exa- or specific illustration of Jesus' overarching pattern of life which we are to follow in, right? And, and again, this is probably not, um, I, mean, I, I think this isn't the thing we probably argue with intellectually. Right? This is the thing we wrestle with practically, right? Uh, you know, because you, you've heard me say before what I heard, you know, 40 some years ago, right? The test, the test of your servant's heart is how you act when you're treated like a servant. Uh, like, well, so I'm just here to serve. And then someone actually treats you like you're there to serve. And it's like, well, who do you think I am? Right? We, we actually don't, we don't adopt the stance deeply as we ought to because we have the remnant of selfishness in us that wants to be in a place of honor or wants to be in a position of authority we want titles. We want those things rather than wanting the work of service, rather than wanting to do the thing that, that Jesus did, which was come to serve and, and not to be served. So, so we, we, if this is, and here's the, the way in which my mind is working, hopefully I can bring you along with me. If this is what Jesus places priority on, Right? This is the way it should be among you. And this is how Jesus lived as the example of that. Then, then a mature believer will aspire to being a servant. And a healthy church will be wanting to multiply servants, right? It won't be about, um, it won't be about creating authority structures so people can have their title and influence. It will be about moving toward needs to meet them like Jesus did. It will be about servants. It will be about, about doing what, what Christ wants done in the body. And that, that means it's a, uh, a culture that has to be created in the church, right? It's a culture, uh, if I could put it this way, of inclination toward activity to meet needs rather than passivity in the face of them, right? Rather than seeing them and hoping somebody with authority meets them, it would be moving toward them to, to minister, right? It would be 
It would be mobilizing servants so that people are, are being the hands and feet of the Lord, right? Moving. And sometimes what can happen uh, in the life of churches is a kind of institutionalism where, where everything becomes all boxed up with responsibilities and people feel like, well, I just, I sort of like, I live in my box and I've got a list of things that people tell me I do and that's, that's what I do. And if I'm not in a box, then I don't have a place to serve, which is a fallacy because actually serving is predicated on seeing needs and seeking to meet them, not actually on having a job description, right? I mean, I imagine the guys who pass by the other side of the road while the man, you know, robbed and left to die, were thinking, well, that's not my, that's not my job description, right? And, and, and Jesus says, no, the person who loved like he's supposed to love was the person who stopped and met that need, right? They moved to meet the need. They adopted the stance of servant rather than uh, calling headquarters to have someone dispatched to clean this mess up, right? It's moved toward it to meet the need. That's what should be in the heart and fabric of the church. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buzz through a few passages. I want you to follow along with me, all right? Let's treat it like a sword drill. You guys remember sword drills? I'm not going to ask you to stand up or read it or anything, but let's see if you can get there quickly. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. So, so this means the local assembly should be producing servants. Right? Since that's the call of discipleship is to become a servant like Jesus, the church should be working to produce those, to multiply the number of people who are servants. And that would mean that the structure of the church is set up to equip those. Look at Ephesians 4, beginning 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as, a pro- and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So, so here's, here's um, Jesus' plan for the church. He ascends to heaven. He gives gifts to the church. Those gifts listed in verse 11 function for a, an overarching purpose, that is to equip the saints to two specific outgrowths of that. Equip them for the work of ministry or service and for the building up of the body. And, you know, people like to get into grammatical debates and all kinds of stuff. The, the key thing you'd see is the word for equipping the saints. That's actually a different Greek word than the two next two fours in verse 11 or 12 for the work of service. And then actually the same Greek word is for the building up of the body of Christ. So there's a, there's a general statement, right? The immediate priority of pastors and teachers is to equip the saints. 
And the thing that should happen out of that is that they would do the work of service and the body would be built up. Whether that's two parallel things or they, it's sort of like a, 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 you know, a domino. If saints are equipped, they do the work of ministry and service and the body is built up. Right. I had a Greek teacher when I was in college, when we couldn't make up our mind on a grammatical function, he'd say, pay your quarter and take your choice. So, so whether it's for the equipping, for work of service, for building up the body, or whether it's for equipping, for the work of the service, for the building up of the body, pay your quarter and take your choice. All right. But what can't be missed is leadership in the church exists to equip the saints to serve and for the body to be built up through that, right? So, so who, who is on the front line of service in the church? Pastors or congregation? Congregation. Pastors are equipping the congregation to do the work of the service, right? Ministry is in the hands of all of God's people, not a few. So if, if the church is going to fulfill the mandate of Jesus to make disciples and following Jesus as a disciple means being a servant, serving uh, deeply and, and widely, right? The greatest servant is the one who serves the most people. Then, then the church should be equipping people to do that, right? That should be at the center of church so that everything that's happening from the ministry of the word is, again, not, it's not flowing into a bowl so that you're just accumulating Bible knowledge. It's actually like a pipeline that's pushing us into service. Right? We're never, we were never, the church was never designed to be a sit and soak kind of thing. It's never to be a sponge that just gets filled up with water and never gets wrung out in service to other people. Right? And, and sometimes what can happen is people can confuse spiritual maturity with accumulated notes or information, right? They've got lots of, you know, I mean, they, they've written down all the notes. They've got all kinds of Bible information. And, 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 and you know this text, right? Paul says, knowledge can puff up, love edifies, right? It's a false kind of knowledge. It's not deep enough knowledge if it doesn't get translated into the expression of love which edifies people, a.k.a. service, right? Because you're not really being transformed if it's not overflowing into an impact on other lives through serving them to help them grow up into Christ. So, so the church would be existing to multiply the number of people doing that. A healthy church has an ever-increasing number of people, if I can just use the image, who are grabbing their towel like Jesus to go serve. 
Right? That's, that's the point of it. And too often, uh, life in the church reflects life in our culture, which tends to be wanting to see all benefits flow toward us. And then when it comes to service, we really mean a position of authority, like James and John. Yeah, we want to serve. Can I be boss? I'd like to serve as boss. Right? And that's, that's not actually the biblical model or paradigm. It is actually serve by meeting the needs of people, pouring out your life to meet those needs like Jesus did. So just go a few pages to Philippians 2. All right, so equipping is a central part of that multiplying process, but also, um, if I can, I'm going to put a string of E's, all right? So if you're not a alliteration person, you ought to be, but no. Exemplify, exemplify. Philippians 2, I'll just start with, with uh, the statement that we are most familiar with. Look in verse 5. Have this attitude or this mindset in, or you might have a footnote, among yourselves, because it's actually plural there. Have this attitude among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself or humbled himself would be better, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. So, The reason Paul says that, right, have the attitude or mindset of Christ, which is a a mindset of service, is because of the things he's just asked them to do in verses 2, 3, and 4. In 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. I mean, I think that many moderns would take verses 3 and 4 and say, well, that's codependency, right? That's not healthy. You're actually putting them ahead of yourself. You're going to be more concerned about their interests than your own. That's, that's not healthy. That's not good. But here's the answer. If you're a believer, why would we do that? Because we have this mind in us or among us, which was in Christ Jesus. I mean, because the mindset of Christ produced a life uh, that, that you could reasonably say, if you're looking at it from just the window of this life, was not in his best interest. Right? I mean, to, to subject yourself to the contradiction of sinners against him that he did to face the rejection that he did, to face the deprivation that he did, to face the persecution that he did, the execution that he did. None of that would be considered your best life now or or in any way 
by modern standards, a healthy approach to life. And so here's what, here's what I suggest is we, because it may be actually popping in your head. Yeah, but that's Jesus. And he knew if he did all this, he was going to have everything that came because of it. And you know what I say to you? Like, if you know Jesus, you actually also know what will come out of it. This light affliction, which is but for a moment, works a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That we too have been promised something far better from God than anything that this life offers. So we actually don't have a card that we can play that says, well, that's the Jesus exception. We can't really do that. <laughs> when in fact, the text says, have this mind in you, which was also in Jesus. And he became obedient even to the point of death. Right? So it's, 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 we have this powerful example of our Lord but it's also in this chapter, not just the example of Jesus that Paul appeals to. Look, look down to verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I, may also, I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare they all seek after their own interests, but not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth. They serve with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. So think about it. Someone wants to pull out the Jesus exception card. Well, yeah, of course Jesus could do that, but you can't expect us to do that. And Paul goes, hey, I'm sending Timothy to you. You know what Timothy's like? He genuinely cares more about you than himself. He is a servant just like Jesus was. All right. And, and if you go, well, but that's Timothy. I mean, he's, you know, he's special too. Look down a little bit farther. Verse 25. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not only on, not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Look at this and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to fill up or complete what was deficient in your service to me. So here's Epaphroditus. And doing the work of service almost cost him his life. And Paul says, so you got to take everything with Epaphroditus with a grain of salt because he's a little bit of a wacko. Now he says, hold him in high regard for that very reason. Because he was following the example of Jesus. And he was willing to risk himself for the sake of the work of Christ. Now, 
here's the point I want to make. It actually might be a little more subtle right now, so I'm going to make it overt. Do you see what Paul is doing to cultivate servants in the church of Philippi? He's grounding it in the examples of servants. Greatest example, Jesus. But then he comes along and says, and think about Timothy, what he's like, and think about Epaphroditus is like. These, these are models for you to follow, right? And, and here's what I would say is the life of Timothy and Epaphroditus is an instrument that God uses to produce and multiply servants. And I think some of us could testify to that, right? People that we have known who have served Christ faithfully and without them ever preaching a message to us about it or, or, or lecturing us about it, their life set a pattern that was transforming for us in seeing what it means to be a servant and having a heart cultivated to become one. Right? That's how multiplying servants happens in the church. It's not just by a sermon, though sermons are important and good, right? Don't cut out sermons. It's not just by a Sunday school lesson or by some kind of an emphasis. It's, it's actually people who are doing it and their life radiates and is held up as honorable because of their service. They motivate other people to be servants by doing the thing that Jesus said to do. Right? That's why it's so important that the church be thinking about how we can cultivate this mindset. Yes, what the early part of the chapter is, but also how we all set a model for other people. Not the least of which is the little eyes that are watching our lives. Right? Are they seeing servants in their home? And when they come into church, they see godly people pouring out their lives for the good of other people and they see this is the way of following Jesus, right? This is what it means to follow Jesus. These people don't just say spiritual stuff. They actually live a life like Jesus who came to see, serve and not be served, right? But if, if, if the disposition in the congregation of God's people, and, and, and I'm just, I'm talking now abstractly, all right? If a church, the disposition of people in the church are looking at the church as serving them, right? People are doing stuff to provide stuff for me, and I evaluate the church on what it does for me, then that too permeates into the church, right? It, it starts to create a mindset which isn't like what Jesus was teaching. It's more like the self-centered mindset that James and John exhibited. What can they get from this rather than what can they give to this? Right? So we need uh, not just equipping, but we 
desperately need examples and we need to hold that up, right? I, um, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, when you're a pastor, like obviously there can be sometimes pressure on kids to, you know, are you going to be a pastor? You're going to be a pastor. And I, I, I believe I said to every one of them, said, you know, the thing that I want more in your life than anything is for you to serve Christ. And then I would go, I would, I'm not going to tell you who, but I, I would say to them, hey, this person and this person and this person and this person in our church who were not pastors. And I'd say, they're using their life to serve and advance the work of Christ. That's the thing that matters most, right? If God, if God works to make you a preacher, great. But the thing that really matters most is if you see that your life, and I would usually pick a random strata of occupations and, and all that kind of stuff, because I wanted them to see across the board, we serve Christ, right? And, and we need to have that kind of mindset of multiplication through the examples of service that we set, right? We, we really want people to see that serving Jesus is the most important thing in life because our lives are actually for that, that purpose. Hebrews chapter 10, if you would, please. Back to the sword drill, all right? Hebrews chapter 10. A text that, that I think every pastor comes back to regularly, but I certainly uh, weave it in periodically so that we're reminded about what we're supposed to be and do as a church. And, and here's what I'd say, Hebrews 10, 24. Alongside of equip by leadership and exemplify by all followers of Christ, there should be encouragement towards service. 1024, let us consider how to stimulate or provoke one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, so here's a part of the, uh, the, the importance of the assembly of God's people is that we would actually be encouraging and stimulating the service that we're supposed to be giving, right? We're, uh, we're supposed to cheer and cheer on and challenge each other to this. Right? And, and I think that's a part of how it spreads in the body is when other believers are cheering on servants, provoking to love and good deeds, challenging one another when we start to drop away from it. Right, That's verse 25, because we don't want to, we don't, uh, I'd say it this way, if we love, if we love people, we want what is best for them. And if serving Jesus Christ faithfully is what is best for them, then we will cheer it on, but we'll also challenge rivals. When people's lives start to get out of balance, we'll try to provoke them to love and good deeds. We'll try and push them to remember how serving Christ is first. 
right? And, and not buy into the mindset of our culture that treats it as like volunteerism or something. If you have some spare time, give back. But that's not what serving in the church is. It's not, well, hey, you should give a little back. As if you, you can just sort of tip Jesus, <laughs> right? Give a little back is, is fine for maybe things that don't have actually the kind of uh, claim that Jesus does, which is you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. So glorify God in your body. I, I don't give a little back to Jesus. I'm his. I was his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. I mean, that's, that's what life's about. And we should cheer on one another and challenge each other toward that. Are we growing in our love, in our service? Are we, are we, are we inviting other people to get in, right? Are we, are we saying, hey, listen, I've got this thing I'm doing to serve in this way. Come alongside me. Let's do this, right? There's this need that I heard about. Can you come with me? Let's go meet that need. Let's, let's, let's take care of this. Let's knock this out. Let's show the love of Christ. Involve other people in it. Bring them along. Encourage them in it. Right? Again, here's what I'd say, and, and I'm not, I want you to be clear. We should be doing that because we're supposed to be equipping. But this text isn't to pastors, it's to all of us. So it shouldn't be pitted as a, uh, well, you know, that's the pastor's job, not mine. It actually should be the whole body's job. Right? It should be all of us trying to encourage and lift each other up in the task of love and good deeds, of serving Christ in this way. We should be all pushing forward in it and, and raising the, the bar of standard, uh, standard of service for Christ. Because the goal here is to see the church mobilized with servants like Jesus wants it to be. It reflects his character. So that would mean more people doing service. It would be more services being done. It would mean more servants are being developed and ultimately more servants being deployed, sent out. That's what God would want us to be doing. And, and so... Here's the thing that I, I said, we had this conversation in a panel discussion on Friday, um, which, you know, I, I hate the fact that I'm not, I'm not, I was now the oldest guy on the panel. I mean, I used to say there was a transition, unfortunately, a long time ago. I used to always, when I went to conferences and I preached in conferences, I was always the youngest guy there. And then all of a sudden, I started to be like near the top. And now I'm up at the top and it stinks, right? But, but the reality of it is, is one of the questions came up about, you know, this issue. And, and I said, one of the things that churches have to be committed to is the replenishing of the church with younger people who would serve Christ. Because too many churches just get old and die. And somewhere along the line, sometimes that's demographic, 
right? Sometimes communities get old and die, right? So I'm, I'm, there's, a, there's a providential part of it that is a part of it, right? It's, it's just reality. I remember when I came back uh, between 1970 and 1990, the cities of Allen Park, Lincoln Park, and Melvindale went, went from, uh, I forget the numbers now, but I know it was 50% of school age, right? That's why if you drive around Allen Park, there's lots of office buildings that look like old elementary schools because the school age population was cut in half in two decades because all of these homes were starter family homes with you know, three, four, five kids in them. And 20 years later, those kids are all grown. That's what I mean by sometimes communities can just sort of age out. They go from young families to empty nesters. The same thing sometimes can happen to churches because they don't actually cultivate the next generation of servants. They don't raise up people who view the church as primarily a place to serve Christ, they view the church as primarily a place to be served. They've been entertained for 18 years, 22 years, and, and they're thinking the church is for their entertainment rather than the church is for serving Christ. So we have to keep a heart to multiply servants by showing them what it means to serve Christ and looping them in to a life of service for Christ, exhorting and encouraging each other that Jesus measures our life not by how big and important we are in the world's eyes, but how dirty our towel is because we're busy serving. That's where it really matters. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for showing us what it means to serve. And because you served, we, we can have life. You laid down your life for us. You were willing to be obedient even to death on the cross. And so uh, we praise you for that and thank you for that and ask that you would help us to meditate on that and what that means for how we live, what it means for how we view other people, how we view our place in the body. Help us to reflect the mindset of Jesus Christ and to model it, not for any attention drawn to us because that would spoil the whole picture, but because we want to be like Jesus. And we want to be servants of the true and living God. So help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.